Uh, good evening once again uh, to those who are here, and uh, good evening to those who are at home. Uh, we're looking at 1 Samuel 4, uh, so uh, you might want to have that open in front of you. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. There's also an outline on the, um, uh, on the order of service, uh, but uh, yeah, so you might want to have that as well, uh, but the, the passages uh, will appear on the screen as well. Let me uh, lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do indeed speak to us uh, by your Spirit, uh, through your Word, uh, and we pray uh, once again, Lord, that as we look at your Word together, uh, that you'll speak to us, uh, that you enable us uh, to understand what you're saying to us, uh, that you give us hearts that are soft to you, uh, to listen and obey, uh, and that you show us uh, Christ more clearly, that we might love him and appreciate him and serve him. And so we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine how terrible it would be to see our country defeated in a war? Or how awful it would be to see our, our city ravaged by COVID-19? That'd be horrific, wouldn't it? But far more devastating than even that would be to see our God defeated by his enemies. Can you imagine what that would be like? That would, that would change how we thought of him, how we relate to him. Can you even worship a God who has been defeated? Well, in our passage today, we are looking at an incident in which it seems like God has been defeated. But we will also see that he remains in control even in apparent defeat, and he's carrying out his purposes. But before we get into that, let me remind you of the background of our passage. Over the last few weeks, we've seen how God brought this little boy, Samuel, to his temple at Shiloh in ancient Israel. We've had an old priest there, a man named Eli. We've seen the corruption of the sons of Eli, who stole the fat of the offerings which was reserved for God, and slept with the women who were serving at the shrine. We've heard God speak his word of judgment against Eli and his family through this man of God who came to Eli. Both his sons would die on the same day. Eli's family would be ruined. We also noted that the word of God was rare in those days. And we saw how God started calling Samuel and spoke to him in an audible voice. And his first message was that judgment on Eli's family was about to happen. And then as Samuel grew, God was with him, continued to use him to speak to Israel. And now in chapter 4, verse 1, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God was speaking to his people by his prophet once again. But in the rest of chapter 4, we would think this had never happened because no one seems to be listening to the word of God. The chapter starts with the Israelites going out into battle. They are fighting against their enemy, the Philistines, another group of people who live there in the Promised Land. Israel encamps at a place which will later be called Ebenezer. And the Philistines are nearby at Aphek. They face each other and they fight. Israel's defeated. The Philistines killed 4,000 men on the battlefield. It's a terrible loss. And the surviving troops come back to the camp. And the elders of Israel ask, in verse 3, 
Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why, why has the Lord done this? It's a good question, isn't it? They know God is sovereign. They know he's in control. So he must have given them into the hands of their enemies. But why? The thing is, even though they ask the question, they don't examine themselves and repent of sin before the Lord. They don't cry out to God. They don't call on Samuel to hear the word of God in this situation. They decide to do something themselves. They don't deliberately go against the word of God, but they don't seek it either. Perhaps Israel's got used to not hearing the word of God all these years. They don't automatically turn to it in times of trouble. They don't really want to know why the Lord defeated them. They just want to make sure he doesn't do it again. And that is going to be a disaster. Brothers and sisters, when we face problems in our lives, we are always quick to look for solutions. I know I am. But let us not forget to cry out to the Lord and to listen to his word. Let us not forget to ask him to show us if there are areas in our lives that are displeasing to him. There may be, there may not be. But let us take the opportunity to repent of any known sin. And let us come to the cross where we will find mercy and grace. Then only we look for solutions. And when we do, we start by asking if the word of God has something to say about this matter. If the goal of our lives is to become more like Christ in our character, then let's not waste the problems we go through by only looking for our own solutions, rather than by looking to God. Well, the Israelites think they've got a solution to this problem. Verse 3, they say, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here, from Shiloh, that it might come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Israel was meant to be led by God through his word. But now, they think that they can control God. They think they can summon him. If they bring the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt among his people, they would, so to speak, bring God into the battle. Then he, or it, would save them from their enemies. And so they send the message to Shiloh where the temple is, and ask for the Ark to be brought there. At the end of verse 4, we read that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, as readers, this should sound warning bells for us, shouldn't it? Because we know that God is planning to bring judgment upon them. But the men of Israel don't see it this way. They think the Ark's going to give them victory. So it's a great boost to their morale. And when the ark arrives in the camp, they, they, they give a mighty shout. And so much so, in verse 5, it says that the earth resounded. They are confident. God is with us, they think. And if God is with us, who can stand against us? The battle is the Lord's. We will surely defeat the Philistines. Friends, don't think these Israelites were people without faith. They seem to have a strong faith. 
They are religious. But their faith is not in God's word. And when religious faith is divorced from God's word, it becomes superstition. Instead of letting God lead them by his word, they think they can manipulate God. They think they can use him to achieve their purposes. They think they can control him rather than he control them. Do we sometimes fall into this? Now, there are obvious ways we can fall into superstition. Let me give you some examples. Now, many of us wear crosses on our necks or hang them in our house. Right? Don't hear me criticizing that. We're all in favor of it if it's done for the right reasons. Uh, I've given a cross to my daughter. I'm delighted when she wears it. Uh, wearing a cross can remind us that we belong to Jesus who died for us. It can remind us that we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. It can signal to people that we meet and interact with that we are Christian and open up doors for conversations about Jesus. Really good things. But sometimes we think that if we wear a cross around our neck or hang it on our door or in our car, it will protect us and ward against evil. As if God's power comes through this object that we are wearing. Now that, my friends, is superstition. We want God's protection, we ask for it in prayer. We don't control him by objects. Now furthermore, there are even good things that God commands that are used in superstitious ways. Right? The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is what God had commanded him that, he, that it would be made. Uh, he himself dwelt and thrown there. There he met his people. But even those good things Israel tried to use to manipulate God. Baptism is a command of the risen Christ. Some people think if I'm baptized, it automatically means I'm saved. Friends, you're only saved if that baptism is received rightly. That is by faith. Right? Trusting in God's promises is what saves you, not the, not the water itself. The Lord's Supper is given by Jesus to proclaim his death until he comes again. As we eat and drink together, we remember his death. We put our trust in him. That is what it means to, to feed on him in our hearts by faith. Many years ago, someone told me that instead of eating the bread, he, took, he had taken it home, he mixed it with the food of his non-Christian wife to try and make her convert. And he was very angry with God when it didn't happen. More recently, I've heard of people who think that if they take communion regularly, it will protect them from COVID-19. To eat bread and drink wine, to fellowship in the death of Christ, that is a sacrament of the Lord. To eat the bread or to treat the bread and wine as if they are magical, that is superstition. Or some people even use the sinner's prayer as like a magical incantation. I can ignore God, I can live a life of sin because, you know, how many years ago I came, I said those words. Or I came forward at a rally, or put my hand up and, and, uh, to receive Christ, and then I'm okay. As if you can ignore God and His Word, if you just say these words. Now, those things are very blatant, isn't it? But, but there are subtle ways that we, can, that we can do this kind of thing as well. We think there are good things to be done 
battles to be fought. We have our own ambitions and plans. Rather than listen to God's word and obey it, we try to achieve our own thing and then demand that God bless it because we're doing it for the gospel. But we forget that God is the one who is building his church. God is the one who is growing his kingdom. God is the one who is ruling the world. Before we do anything for God, let us first and foremost be people who humbly listen to what God says in his word and seek to obey him. Let's make sure what we are striving for is indeed what he tells us to strive for in his word. And then we serve him in the context of obedience and trust him whatever the results. The one thing we cannot do is manipulate God. But meanwhile, in the Philistine camp, they hear the, the noise of the shouting and they ask each other in verse 6, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they find out that the ark of the Lord has come to the camp. And they're scared. They say, a God has come into the camp. And not just any God. They've heard of the God of Israel. What he did to their, his previous enemies, the Egyptians. Though they don't get all the details quite right. Lah. Now listen to what they say. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They're convinced that they are up against powerful Israelite gods. And then they decide to take a positive attitude rather than a defeatist one. Okay, this is a bigger challenge. Let's rise to it. Let's fight even harder. And they continue in verse 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. It's a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? If you're really fighting against the Lord, you're not going to win by fighting harder with a more positive attitude. The Lord is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. You cannot fight against him and hope to win. But then look what happens in verse 10. The Philistines fight. Israel's defeated. And they flee. And this is huge slaughter. 30,000 Israeli foot soldiers fall that day. Israel loses the battle and the death toll is seven and a half times greater than the last time. And in verse 11, the ark of God is captured. The ark of God is captured. Did God lose the battle? Did the rah-rah positive thinking of the Philistines actually defeat him? Has God's presence in the ark actually been taken into exile by his enemies? This looks like the Lord has lost. It looks like he's no longer sovereign. It looks like he's not in control anymore. It looks like he's just one of those, any one of the other gods of the nations who sometimes win, sometimes lose their wars. But then we read the last part of verse 11. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. 
And we remember that God had said that they would both die on the same day. And then we realize that what's happening is actually still according to the word of the Lord. Things are still going according to plan. And sisters and brothers, there are times in our lives when it will look like God has failed. There are times and there are things that will happen that don't go according to our plan, and so we assume it's not according to God's plan. And it looks like God has been defeated, but actually, God is still at work. He brings good out of evil. He is working out his good purposes. In this case, what looked like defeat was actually God at work fulfilling his plans for judgment. He was bringing judgment upon Eli's family as he promised in his word. And he was bringing judgment upon a nation that was ignoring his word, but trying to manipulate him. See, now shifts back to Shiloh, where people are anxiously waiting to hear back about news from the battle. And a man from the tribe of Benjamin comes running back from the battle, and he's not looking good. His clothes are torn, his head is dirty. Eli's sitting there by the road, watching and waiting, his heart trembling for the ark of God. He doesn't see the man, but he hears the people crying out in anguish as they, and they get news from him. And, and he asks, what is this uproar? So the man comes and tells him. He's 98, he's blind. The man explains who he is in verse 16. I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. Eli asks, how did it go, my son? And the man says in verse 17, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Eli already knows that his family are under God's judgment. God had already told him that his two sons would die on the same day. and It was going to happen soon. He probably half expected it when they were called up for the battle. But the ark of God captured? That was something totally unexpected. Look what happens in verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli falls over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck is broken. He dies for he's old and heavy. Right? Maybe he's heavy because he's been eating all the fat of the sacrifices that his sons had stolen from God. probably falls because when he hears about the ark, because it is such a shocking, shocking thing. Death of two sinners, kind of expected. Exile of the ark, totally not. Sometimes God works in unexpected ways. 
you would never expect God to allow his ark to be taken into exile. You would never expect the presence of God to leave his people and to go into the Philistine area. This is uncharted territory. What would it mean for the Philistines to have a holy God dwelling among them? What would it mean for Israel to have God leave them? You have to come back in two weeks and find out. Eli judged Israel for 40 years. But now he and his sons are dead. And that's not the only tragedy that happens to this family today. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, is pregnant. And when she hears the news that the ark of God is captured and her father-in-law and her husband are dead, she goes into labor. But this is complicated labor. The baby is born, but she's dying. The women attending to her try to comfort her. Don't be afraid, you've born a son, but she pays no attention. Yet before she dies, she names the child. And she gives him the name Ichabod, which means, where's the glory? Where's the glory? The glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. Her father-in-law, her husband are dead. She says it again in verse 22 to underline the point. The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The presence of God has unthinkably been taken into exile. The glory of God has left his people. And for the rest of his life, this baby boy will be the reminder of this to everyone who calls his name. Now, this exile of God's glory anticipates two other events in God's plan. 400 years later, God would give the prophet Ezekiel a vision. And in that vision, Ezekiel will see God's glory departing from Jerusalem. Because of their sin, God would abandon his people and therefore they would be defeated by their enemies, the Babylonians. They too would go into exile like the ark did so many years before. But even that exile was actually a shadow of, of a greater one that is to come. You see, when we come to the New Testament, we see God's glory. But where do we see God's glory? Not in the Ark of the Covenant, but in Jesus, isn't it? God's presence with his people is not enthroned between the cherubim on the ark, but incarnated in his Son. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The Apostle John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. Where's the glory? Well, John continues, And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. The glory and presence of God are no longer the ark, but in Jesus Christ. But remember, we've seen today that God sometimes acts in ways that we would never expect. And that happened as well in the person of Jesus Christ. 
another corrupt priesthood handed Jesus over to the Gentiles. And the Son of God, the one in whom God's presence and glory truly dwelt, was crucified. And the glory of God was sent into the exile of death. It looked like he'd been defeated by his enemies. It looked like God would no longer dwell with his people. It looked like God's promises had failed. But God was still in control. He was still working out his plan. The plan he had promised in his word. For like the exile of the ark, the exile that Jesus went into, in his death on the cross was, was due to the sins of God's people. But in Jesus' case, he was willingly suffering in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. What looked like defeat was actually God at work, fulfilling his plans for judgment. But in this case, the judgment fell on his son. And because Jesus bore the judgment for us, we can be forgiven without God saying that the things we've done don't matter. We can be accepted as his people despite our sin and given the gift of eternal life with him forever. And so what looked like defeat is actually victory. In paying for our sins, God disarmed his enemies and ours, triumphing over them at the cross, for they have nothing to accuse us with anymore. Now today's passage is not going to be the end of the story for the ark. The ark will return from exile. The exile will not be the end of the story for Israel either. They too will return. And it certainly will not be the end of the story for Jesus. He would rise from the dead. God is fulfilling his purposes in this world according to his word and nothing will stop that. So brothers and sisters, let us not be people who try to manipulate God or control him. God will bring such behavior to judgment. Instead, let us be people who humbly seek to listen to his word and obey him. Let us trust him to fulfill his promises, even when it looks like things are out of control. And let us worship the one who seemed defeated on the cross, but was actually dying for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do rule us by your word. But please help us to, to listen to your word and obey it rather than seek to manipulate you. Thank you that you are indeed in control, that you're fulfilling your promises. And please help us to keep trusting you even when things don't go according to our plans and we don't understand why. And we thank you for your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death on the cross for our sins. 
and thank you that he faced the judgment of exile on our behalf so that we can be forgiven and brought back as your people. And so we pray that you help us to always love him, serve him, and obey him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.